Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joined the show to discuss the state of the city address as well as his recent conversation with Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Ontario braces for over 900 new cases of COVID-19, prompting an emergency provincial cabinet meeting. Is it time for more restrictions again? And McMaster University and Brock University have teamed up to research and develop a device that detects cancer signs in minutes at home. The project lead, Leila Soleimani, joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's happening with the local politics. I mean, three of the big issues that I guess every city is dealing with these days, number one is going to be COVID, and secondly, the economy, and there's always these other major projects that are happening. Well, in Hamilton, uh, the two big ones besides the economy and COVID-19, of course, are uh, the uh, future of LRT, if in fact there is one, and, and now, of course, the Commonwealth Games bid, which is still before City Council. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, back and forth on those of the last couple of weeks. As a matter of fact, uh, just a couple of days ago, vis-a-vis the Commonwealth Games bid, uh, there was uh, a lot of concern raised when uh, local MPP Donna Skelly uh, suggested that the provincial government was not going to help fund the games. This is part of what she said. Rather than misleading anybody or letting this drag on and on and on and, and sucking all the oxygen out of the room and, and forcing council to deal with you know these, these big asks, without any real meat on the bones, let's deal with it. And what is the big issue? Can we do, can we support both international events in one year? And the answer is no. That being, of course, the uh, World Cup of Soccer, or football as they call it internationally, which is going to be, uh, well, it's going to be North America before the games are slated for Toronto that same summer as the uh, the 2016 games. Uh, thankfully, though, to get some clarity on this, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger delivered his uh, State of the City address earlier this week and actually uh, had some discussions with the Premier. Uh, mayor Eisenberger joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. This is, a, this is quite a year to be the mayor of a city like this. You're dealing with an LRT issue, which I don't think has quite been resolved yet, although there's a lot of speculation. You can bring us up to speed on that. This Commonwealth, and uh, you've got the, the double-headed monster of COVID-19 and the impact it's had on the local economy. It was quite a year. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 20, I know we thought 2019 was a, a year that didn't uh, end particularly well. 2020 is uh, even more challenging, but... You know, at the end of the day, we, we need to continue on as a city. We need to continue to aspire to, you know, the future of our city and uh, future employment uh, opportunities. Uh, I can tell you that in the uh, State of the City address, I, I informed the community at large that Hamilton's doing, even in the midst of a COVID uh, coronavirus issue, uh, the development uh, applications are coming in fast and furious, and we're well over a billion dollars already, and uh, expect that that will uh, continue to grow towards the end of the year. So, great, uh, great, uh, you know, land redevelopment, great, uh, you know, job, job employment opportunities. The airport is uh, booming along in terms of distribution centers, and the uh, trucking industry is doing really well, and health sciences is just exploding, as as you might expect. Given the uh, given the research that's going on at McMaster and at MIP, so uh, we're doing really well in a kind of a global perspective in positioning ourselves for success. Uh, Commonwealth and LRT is part of that. Uh, it's always been about the, you know the employment and legacy pieces that get left behind as a result of the investments that we're encouraging our federal provincial partners to make. And um, uh, I'll continue to advocate on behalf of the city of Hamilton to, commit to ensure that we get our fair share of the funding that's going around the province of Ontario right now, by, both from the federal government and the provincial government in projects, in events, 
uh, in LRT and uh, and transit projects. Uh, Toronto, for instance, uh, you know, bumping up their LRTs to subways, uh, you know, ten times the cost. So for those that are, you know, saying there isn't money around, there is money around. We just need to make sure that we get our fair share. Uh, and how are we in that regard? I mean, I know that uh, you've had some discussions with uh, uh, Federal Minister Catherine McKenna, who I know she's an Ottawa MP, but of course she's from Hamilton. Her family still lives here. Uh, so she knows well of what you speak in situations like that. And you've also had some conversations with the Premier of late. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that, first of all, uh, because I know that uh, that was very timely to actually have that discussion. Talk to us about that uh, that meeting earlier this week. So we had a very, very positive meeting. And, you know, the foundation of the meeting was uh, Commonwealth Games. And uh, we, we got a commitment from the Premier that he's supportive of the Commonwealth Games. It's just a matter of timing and, you know, ironing out some of these real or perceived conflict issues. And uh, the moment that happens, then, uh, you know, if we need to pivot, they'll pivot. And uh, But he, uh, he, he assured me that, uh, that he has the City of Hamill's uh, tacit support to continue to move forward, and I know that the federal government has indicated their support as well. And this is, again, about this This Commonwealth Games is now predominantly focused on affordable housing. How do we, how do we maximize the value of these games and get the, the kind of affordable housing that we need in our community? And, you know, the, uh, the, the, the proposals that I've seen in partnership with Induel and other housing providers that would be uh, – uh, also, a partnership with the federal and provincial government is an enormous uh, uh, escalation of the quality and volume of affordable housing in our community. And it's one of our very m- most dire need issues. And so the legacy of the games is uh, predominantly focused on that. On the LRT front, uh, the premier once again confirmed to me, uh, and he said this publicly, that he is, uh, he is on board to help make LRT happen for Hamilton. Uh, we await their their assessment that the, the review that they've been doing through KPMG and others to uh, come to their final determination. But I, I'm uh, reasonably confident that uh, they're going to say that LRT is the best bet for the city of Hamilton, and we are looking for a different funding model. So the private sector is very much engaged now. Uh, the federal government has indicated previously their support for public transit and you know and, and public transit projects across the country. And certainly uh, there was interest expressed by the Prime Minister and the uh, Minister McKenna uh, of the Hamilton Project that they're, uh, they're keen to, to find a way of being helpful. So I, I see the, uh, the stars starting to line up. I've said many times that uh, I'll be confident that this project has happened when the shovels are in the ground. But uh, So we're still a ways off from that, but uh, it is now moving in the right direction. And I, I give full credit to the province who initially came forward and said cancel this whole thing and then uh, then came back with a uh, you know a task force that uh, came back with the conclusion that higher order transit is the best option for us and i anticipate that their recommendation is going to be that uh, their money their billion dollars or, or thereabouts is going to be for lrt for hamilton Let's uh, dovetail that with the discussion you've had with uh, Minister McKenna about that. She's the infrastructure minister, of course. So, I mean, this is at some point, if there's going to be federal assistance, it's got to go over her desk uh, before the mm-hmm. prime minister signs off on this. Uh, what mm-hmm. is holding up the, the commitment here? In other words, I, I, I keep hearing that they're interested. Yeah, we're supportive of the idea of this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's that old phrase, Mr. Mayor, show me the money. At some point, you've got to see some money and say, what is your commitment? Sure. How much are you in for here? Ante up. Well, 
Well, they're uh, they're uh, they're awaiting, uh, you know, for sure the uh, the provincial announcement. So they're uh, they're not going to be the first to step into this. This has not been the, the federal government's project. This has been a you know wholly owned Metrolink's province of Ontario project, and they're uh, they're waiting to see what the province is going to put on the table before they uh, they make their commitment or have a review of what they're prepared to do. So I think that's a that's a logical conclusion for them. Uh, the province needs to move. Uh, they need to uh, finalize their review. This is now going on a year when they came to our town and did their non-announcement. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, worked through the task force process and now have KPMG, uh, you know, work through their process. So I, I think it's high time that they uh, finalize their recommendation for this project for the city of Hamilton. And then uh, I think we'll see a lot more action from the federal government after that. But until such time, they're going to await to see what the province says and does about LRT for Hamilton. I, you can understand the frustration a lot of people are feeling, and I, I assume just as frustrating for you too, though, Mr. Mayor. I mean, because we've heard this this back-and-forth game between the feds and the provinces before, especially when it comes to, well, what you mentioned off the top here, affordable housing. And, and you know, the attitude seems to be, well, I'll go when they go. No, I'll go when they go. And back and forth it goes. Then we saw yesterday in Oakville, they can get together with if they really want to. It doesn't take that much work to simply say, let's let's go on on this and let's get this thing done. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by the relationship that uh, the premier has with uh, with the uh, the federal government, and uh, specifically with Christian Freeland, uh, who is the finance minister. They have, they've seemed to have uh, gotten on well together, and they've found ways of uh, making uh, things move move forward in, in the interest of communities and our economy. So I'm I remain optimistic. You know, as a, as a municipality, we're kind of caught in the middle. Uh, we have to balance all of our work with, uh, you know, the partners that we have to uh, employ here. And uh, there's, you know, none of this is going to happen without their, their funding on this project. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're patiently working through, uh, you know, the steps that we need to work through to ensure that uh, they understand the value of uh, the investment, the, the huge economic uplift in housing opportunities that comes with LRT, the, the amount of jobs that uh, comes with the projects itself. So if they're looking for shovel-ready infrastructure projects to stimulate the economy, which is going to be necessary and is already necessary, uh, the most shovel-ready project we have that's already designed, uh, under, underground services have been worked out, uh, you know, it's virtually ready to go. Uh, it's the LRT project in Hamilton. So, uh, you know what, it, uh, it, it, everything seems to be lining up. Uh, but yes, you're right. We need those final commitments, commitments before we can actually say this is a project that uh, is on its way. So I keep working towards that. Uh, it's been uh, 12 years for me uh, of uh, bringing this project and, and seeing it through to this point. And so uh, I'm not about to uh, give up on it now. I think it's, uh, it's high time that we find our partners' commitments and then, uh, and then have the, uh, the community benefits that come out of that, and, and they're immeasurable. And we've talked about them uh, many times, the, uh, the, the, uh, the housing developments that come along the entire route. There are, there are some 30 or 40 housing uh, opportunities that, uh, that exist that's uh, very attractive to the private sector, both from an affordable housing perspective as well as uh, for profit. And so, uh, and the jobs, uh, some three or 4,000 jobs in the construction of this LRT, which would last, you know, five or six years. Uh, that is uh, that is a good economic boost for the city of Hamilton. So, uh, you know, again, a shovel-ready project, ready to go to inspire and and uh, you know improve our economy is uh, just sitting there, waiting to be uh, be approved and waiting to be funded. But 
Back in the old days when you were just city councilor, Fred Eisenberger, uh, in, representing yep. the east end of the city, of course, you know the delays that they had for the Red Hill, and there, a lot of that was legal. I mean, like, we were going back and forth with the federal government and a whole bunch of other things. We don't want to dig that dirt up again. But a lot of the people that wanted to invest up there finally walked away and said, we can't wait forever. Uh, if you don't get some affirmative action on this soon, I'm, uh, there's a concern here that some people along that line that are interested in investment are simply going to say, look, we, you know, we got to go someplace else. We can't wait for this. I mean, you know, 2020 as you mentioned off the top and as you mentioned in your state of the city is going to be a very challenging year and it would be awfully helpful to the city if we had some infusion yeah. and some commitment to say let's go and get this thing started yeah so i i anticipate bill that uh that the province is going to finalize their announcement within within the month within the next month in the next next 30 days so and that 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 uh then then inspires the the federal government to uh, take a hard look at how they're going to participate uh and you know how they're going to actually procure Procure this project because they they ended the uh, the previous procurement process and they they need another one to uh, you know get the I guess uh, you know a transparent process in place. I'm not sure what they're going to use. Uh, so I don't. I think we're closer to it now than we've ever been. Uh, you know this is not uh, going to be a 50 year project. Uh, you know the, uh, the, uh, the the Red Hill Expressway, as you as you recall, was bogged down by you know lots of opposition. It was bogged down by legal issues it was bogged down by indigenous issues uh you know and and you know so it, it just went on and on and on and then we went to uh you know a uh, a plebiscite or a, a referendum on the issue uh, as you recall and you know i mean it was just a never-ending process that uh that never stopped uh we're, we're not at that process now we're at, at at the tail end of the end game and so uh we we are at the point where people are making their commitments and uh you know Fortunately, I mean, COVID for, for, has slowed things down, but it has also accelerated the need for this kind of a project here and right across the country. So the economic stimulus that's going to be required to get people back to work, and lots of people are out of work, uh, that is, uh, that is a, you know, a really, really important issue now. And if you've got projects that are ready to go, sitting, sitting waiting to be uh, you know, put into practice, uh, that is a pretty easy, easy uh, commitment to make to get that uh, that part of the economy boosted quickly. And so these these projects need to have a quicker turnaround. We have the same issue in housing. Lots of promises around money, but the uh, the ability to, for them to get the money out through CMHC and other other processes uh, are very, very complicated, and they need to streamline that if they want to boost the economy and get this uh, get these jobs going. So. Uh, I encourage all parties to uh, get to the table, sort the issues out. Uh, I'm expecting that the province will communicate with the federal government once their announcement is made, and uh, and then we'll see some quick turnarounds in terms of commitments. I got about a minute left, but I just want to finish off by talking about the the meeting you had with the premier about the Commonwealth situation. Uh, my understanding, and some of the the dialogue I've had with some of the members of the the, the, the bid committee, is the ball's really in the court of the, the federation, the Commonwealth Federation, right now. I mean, if, if you mentioned about pivoting, which might mean moving it, you know, to a different time or even a different year, uh, that's not the city's decision. Uh, it's not the province's decision. It's really up to them. Has there been any contact at all with them about about their ideas and and their their feelings about that? Well, there, there's uh, certainly a tentative uh, support from the Canadian Federation uh, to, uh, to, to be willing to pivot, uh, whether it's 26 or 27. And, that, and, and again, the Premier indicated that he wasn't clear 
on what the conflict with FIFA was. Other, you know, I mean, these these are events that are months apart. You know, ostensibly in the same year, but there are many other events that happen in the same year, and so it didn't seem to me from the from the premier's perspective to be a funding issue, uh, but it could be a, a conflict with FIFA that um, is real or perceived that needs to be sorted out. If it doesn't get sorted out, there's a, there's a desire on. Certainly on, on the Commonwealth 100 teams part to say, okay, 2027 uh, could work. The province has already indicated that 2027 could work for them. And so it's now the international federation that, uh, with 72 nation partners that has to wrap their head around uh, whether they believe that uh, 2027 will work for them. So uh, I, you know, I, I, see, I see things lining up that, uh, that are looking at 2027 as a better option. Uh, personally, uh, you know, I think uh, council needs to see the entire picture, all the benefits that I've seen in terms of the housing piece and some of the legacy uh, sports facilities, uh, and the uh, the minimum, uh, the minimizing of the overall costs of the games, which uh, is very, very reduced as a result of the, the good work that this Commonwealth 100 team has done. And so I anticipate that uh, that we're going to get uh, at some point a positive response here. And I think the International Federation, even though it might be a little difficult for them, I think they uh, will likely come around to you know understanding that uh, this is the best option under the circumstances. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, Mr. Mayor, as always, thanks for the update on this. Uh, best to you and uh, Diane. And I guess you, I saw your ad in the paper. You'll be dining with the family virtually uh, this Thanksgiving. Hope it yep. goes well. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, you know what? All the best, everyone, for Thanksgiving. It's uh, it's a difficult year. Uh, we know that uh, everyone's anxious, but uh, turn that turn that anxiety into some positive action and do what you can to help spread the. Uh, the virus, but at the same time, uh, you know, find ways of enjoying your family. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. Excellent. No quit. Uh, thanks again, Mr. Mayor. We'll talk soon. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford, of course, will do his daily briefing at 1 o'clock, and uh, it's expected that he's going to tighten the, the screws a little bit here and some of the restrictions that are going on. Uh, Global News' Brianna Carnegie has this report. Dr. David Williams says people should stay tuned for further restrictions. When the time's right, I'm sure the minister and the premier would be forthcoming with any announcements. Ontario's chief medical officer of health says they have been clear, and yet contact tracers are having to reach out to 100 people in some cases. I don't understand that. Why would you have that kind of thing? What did you not understand about our messaging? Dr. Williams says alarm bells are ringing louder and louder. The testing positivity rate is up to 2.1% and is closer to 3 for Toronto, Peel and Ottawa. There are also more cases reported outside of those areas and in schools. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what can we expect later on today and going forward on this? I want to bring uh, Richard Brennan into the conversation. Of course, he's a retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for jumping in here today. Uh, I think you mentioned this in, 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 in a way of foreshadowing this, I guess, about a week or so ago when you and I were talking, uh, that uh, when we're looking at these increasing numbers, and it was even worse today than it was yesterday, uh, he's got to bring the hammer down eventually, doesn't he? Well, that's what they have to decide today. I mean, <clears throat> they couldn't have got a clearer message from uh, Dr. David Williams yesterday that, you know, COVID has hit the fan here. And, uh, you you know, you have to do something. Whatever that something is, it you know, it'll probably be some kind of, you know, 2.1 uh, or stage 2 because it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be a full-blown one. But they're finding that, they're finding that the prob- a third of the problems are because of restaurants. And in another similar events where people collect, 
and they have they have to do something now bite the bullet now and hopefully that'll save you know save time and lives at the you know further down the road but they've got it you know they they're they're i'm that cabinet table right now they're talking about it they're there's you know you know uh i guess throwing out different ways of maybe confronting this but what it'll come down to in the end is to a tough measure and maybe not as tough as we've seen before but they it's going to be up to a thousand people before we know it and yeah, yeah sooner than later i mean it's already 900 yeah yeah Here's here's the thing, and you know when when this happened before, and, and they went with the total shutdown, and we all saw the impact that had on the economy and, and on a number of small businesses, some of which is still not open. Uh, but what we're hearing now, and I, I wanted to tap into you because I know you still got a lot of sources at Queens Park, is uh, it seems this time around the premier and some of the cabinet members are actually having some discussions with some of the mayors around the province. Uh, in other words, what can we do? What should we do? In other words, they're looking for input here as opposed to just uh, you know autocratically saying this is what we're going to do. It's one size fits all. I, I think he's trying to probably in some way, shape or form, customize this for the areas that might need it more than others. Well, that's what you know, and good and good for him. Uh, good for mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. To you know, to talk to and and get input from the various mayors because the mayor, in you know wherever, might say, well, no, we don't have a problem here, but you know, the mayor of Ottawa said, yeah, we've got a big problem, so it may be more selective, but there's going to be a, the screws, as you put it, are going to be tightened. There's no question. How tight they get, that remains that may, remains a big question, but something's going to be done today. No question about it. Effective immediately or after the weekend, do you figure? Oh, I would, I would, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised as immediately. I, I, that I don't, I don't, I can't even guess that. But why, why would you not do it now for the weekend? Make it effective immediately. Well, because I'm hearing, and I'm sure you have too, in, in my circles and in yours, that uh, a lot of folks, especially with Thanksgiving weekend coming up, are saying, yeah, you know, we haven't got it yet. Nobody in my family's got it. So what's the big deal if 10 or 12 or 15 of us get together for Thanksgiving weekend? Uh, and that kind of cavalier attitude could really send us over the top. Well, well that's part of the problem, that we're, we're acting like it's, you know, uh, and this is pointed out in the star today, that we're acting like it's 2019. People are, people are doing things now and and just ignoring you know all the signs and just going about their lives as if nothing's changed and that's part and parcel of the problem that's why the numbers are going up so it it will i mean it will require the government to take the measures because the people aren't doing it themselves that's part of the i think the most depressing aspect of this isn't it that they did kind of say okay you guys are on your honor here are the the, the rules uh, you follow these we should be okay and and we're not. I mean, yeah, okay, a lot of us are wearing masks. Most of us, I guess, these days are wearing masks. But the social distancing, no. The crowds, I mean, the, there are bizarre examples like what happened in the Meadowlands and, and Wasaga Beach over the last couple of weeks. The, those are just, you know, crazy people. But even the smaller gatherings like this, you know, with, uh, well, you saw Dr. Williams. Dr. Williams, and you've known him for a long time, uh, is usually a pretty, you know, easygoing sort of a guy i mean he was getting Cerebral, ramped up talking yeah he, he was he was getting ramped up yesterday when he looked well, at he these was, numbers. And, and that's why i'm saying you know you really just have to look to him and see his behavior yesterday that tells you that he sees problem the problem getting much bigger and that the government has got something you know has to do something about it i mean he more or less said it that yesterday that it's it's time 
and he's and you as you point out, he's not one to be too flamboyant. No, it's it's obviously getting to him, and he's looking at this. And and I guess, frankly, we should probably be feeling the same way. This is not new to us. We've been through this before, and we saw the numbers ramping up in the springtime, and you know we saw the total shutdown, uh, and we saw the devastation. We saw the impact it was having on hospitals. Uh, surgeries were. I had surgeries that was can a surgery that was canceled. I know a lot of other people that had surgeries that were canceled. You know, it's it's not just a one trick pony. It's not just like oh, I can't go to the restaurant as much as I want to. Uh, everything pretty much gets shut down or at least impacted in some way shape or form and i guess we have to ask ourselves do you really want to go through that again well there's a story at one of the papers today about a spin class yeah where a hundred people will need to be tested that was in hamilton yeah okay there you go and again that's you know there you are in a class and we hate to single them out but i mean you're in a class you're in a, a room an enclosed room like that a whole bunch of people sweating and huffing and puffing of course they're going to spread I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing not too many of the people in the spin class wear masks while they're spinning. Uh, I wouldn't think so. I know at the gym I belong to, they, they're required to wear their masks going from one machine to the other, and not necessarily when they're on the machine because the machines are separated quite a bit. But, you yeah, know, but that's I, when you're doing the huffing and puffing. Oh, oh, absolutely, but you don't get everybody. I talked to one of the young guys there that works there, and he said the crowd in the afternoon... He spends, he's one of the trainers, friends, one, almost one of all his afternoon just telling people to put their mask on. You know, I mean, hello. And, and this is, you know, we, like I say, we know the process. We understand how easily it is to spread this. And, and back then, I mean, you know, to go back to, to the springtime again when we saw the numbers, and then, by the way, they're higher now than they were even in the springtime. And so, you know, that that. The numbers we had back in March and April were enough for the, for a total shutdown. These are even higher, so what are we expecting here? But that in those days, as you remember, we didn't even know for sure that it was an airborne virus. We just thought, oh, it's going to be on the gym equipment or it's going to be on the counter at the at the uh, the grocery store or whatever. Now we know that it's airborne. So every time somebody sneezes or coughs or, or, or exhales when they're doing a workout or something like that, you're exposing yourself. We're, we're much better educated than that now, you would think. I mean, already the hospitals, are, a lot of the hospitals in Toronto are saying, our ICUs are already full. They're 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and people are on, you know, on intubators and, and uh, already, and, and there's still people dying. It, it's got to, it's, like I've said in the past, it's got to be so frustrating for the, you know, people like Dr. Williams and, and even the Premier to just, to see this going on and saying, you know, what, what else, what can we possibly do to get this message across? And you know what? You know how it'll get across, and this is about the worst way it could possibly get across, is some member of the family or the or people themselves are going to get it. And then they'll understand that it isn't any joke. Well, I've talked to a number of survivors on this, and, uh, and it's uh, it's it's... It's not the flu. I got. Let me just put it that way. I know that it can have different impacts on different people. But we've talked to a couple of the folks that were actually in ICU, uh, and thank God have recovered. But uh, they, you know, they don't want to see anybody go through this ever because of what they're doing. And by the way, speaking of which, and we're going to get into this with our, our next guest in a couple of seconds. We haven't even started flu season yet. And look at the number of COVID cases we've got. And throw, you know, throw that into the mix. And boy, this is going to be a hell of a winter if we don't smarten up. It's it's going to be it's going to be a very could be and it appears to be a very hard time for all for all of us.
when you throw the two in the mix. Well, I got to assume the uh, the premier will have the health minister Christine Elliott there today, and I don't know who else is who's going to be involved in this, depending on how big the announcement is and how encompassing it's going to be. But uh, it's uh, it's. I was going to say it's not going to be good news. It will be good news if it's going to actually try to flatten the curve. Uh, but, you know, when the people start complaining about what he's going to do, my guess is uh, it's probably just going to be the hot spots for now. Uh, you know, Toronto, the uh, Peel region, and, of course, up in Ottawa, where the numbers are significant, although they're, you know, they're going up in most other cities too. But I think he's probably going to – that'll be phase one. And if it doesn't uh, get any better, I think he's probably going to crack down even further next week. Well, I know what I'd be doing if I was him. And I know this is tough to say, but, boy, I'd be doing it now, bringing it down now, because it's going to save lives in the end, and we'll, we'll get back to a, a reasonable normal much quicker if they, if they take tough measures now. Well, here's hoping that uh, people get the message in the next couple of days. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much. I know it's a dinner for you, too, for you and your wife this Thanksgiving, so have a great one. <laughs> thanks, Phil. You have a good uh, weekend, too. Good talking with you. Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist from the Toronto Star. Uh, I want to bring Dr. Todd Coleman into the conversation, a Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time. I, I guess the first question here, are, are you surprised at all that the Premier is pretty much going to crack the whip later on today? Uh, no, I, I'm not very surprised at all. Uh, I was expecting some sort of messaging uh, uh, a while, uh, a little bit longer uh, earlier. Have we waited too long? Uh, I feel as if we have. We saw this upswing in cases uh, happening fairly early on, uh, and uh, the measures that were put in place didn't seem to have any effect. So I, I feel like something a little bit more strict would have been advisable a little earlier. Now, we knew, Doctor, that there was going to be a second wave. And, you know, we were assured by just about everybody, the, the experts like yourself and others, that said, look, it, it's inevitable, you know, and back in the summer when we talked about this, but we don't know how significant it's going to be. Are you surprised the numbers are as large as they are? Uh, not really. Um, some of the, the other kinds of pandemics we've seen, uh, the second wave was uh, uh, usually a lot larger than the initial one. So it's not exactly surprising. Uh, it's surprising in the way that we did have a lot of measures in place uh, earlier uh, when we did the lockdown. Uh, but I, I would have expected to see it a little lower than, than what we've seen so far. Yeah, history touches, t teaches us that, doesn't it? I mean, the Spanish flu that we've always referenced now, it seems to be the closest comparator. Uh, you're right, phase two is, was much more deadly than phase one was. A lot more people died as a result of that. Uh, I'm hoping we're not going to go that way. Uh, but what can we do in the short term? I mean, obviously, as, as individuals, it's follow the rules that you've been talking about since uh, this whole thing came on board, uh, about, you know, hand washing and, and, of course, the social distancing and, and, and the mask wearing and, and things of that nature. Uh, but can you point to one element that we seem to have dropped the ball on that really is causing the spike here? It really amounts to uh, not adhering to what is happening. So those three things that you mentioned, this disease is, is very clearly uh, transmitted through uh, being into contact with people. And that means with the rising cases that we're not following that. People are coming into contact with each other. Uh, they're socializing. They're not wearing masks and or one or the other or both. Uh, and we it's very obviously resulting in the rise in cases that we're seeing. 
Yeah, and the gatherings. I think that seems to be uh, one of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of people right now. It's uh, even if you're wearing masks, uh, and I think you warned us about this uh, when when you know when they they started making in many communities anyway making masks mandatory. Uh, it's it's not a cure all. That doesn't mean you can you can let all the other things slide just because you've got a mask on. We still need to do the social distancing. We still have to avoid crowds. That's right. The masks are incredibly effective. They're one of the most effective tools that we have right now, and some estimates are that it's up to 85% uh, protection. Uh, but that's not the only thing. That means that there's still that 15% that could possibly result from still wearing a mask. So that social distancing is the other added element that just makes that protection almost complete. So we we need to see these numbers go down. I mean, you know, we're on an escalating scale right now. Like I say, it's over 900, and that's that's frightening to see those numbers uh, this early into what we call the second wave right now. How significant significantly rather can we decrease these if we just start playing by the rules uh, it can happen fairly quickly within a couple weeks so that's usually the lag time in terms of, of the seeing what happens in the past two weeks so the snapshot that we have now of the 900 plus cases is usually what's happened a week to two weeks ago so that 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 is usually uh, an indication that we can start driving things down right away uh, with the trajectory that we're on now, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to see what most uh, epidemiologists and modelers saw as uh, the thousand plus cases by mm -hmm. middle of October. But as uh, I'm just trying to remember a, a comment that Dr. Redfield from the uh, Center for Disease Control mentioned. This is according to the U.S. group, of course, not with Canadians. But uh, he said if everybody wore masks over a period of about five or six weeks, you couldn't eradicate it. But, I mean, the numbers would go down significantly where, uh, you know, we'd, it would almost be a non-factor. But it, that that's going to take a real buy-in by the public at large to do something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it would it would definitely drive down the number of cases very significantly if everybody wore a mask uh, and plus adhered to social distancing. Uh, and we, we'd see that fairly, fairly quickly. But as we know, some people have these long term effects. Uh, it takes up to 14 days sometimes for symptoms to manifest themselves. Uh, so we still have those lingering cases that could happen over the course of a couple of weeks, which means that we, we sort of need to draw this out over a month, a month and a half of more strict, strict measures. And uh, the other element of this, too, as I was just mentioning with our previous guest, uh, Richard Brennan, uh, we're not even in flu season yet. Uh, and we've seen the experience in Australia, who, of course, have you know opposite seasons. They've already gone through their winter, heading into their spring now. Uh, their flu season was minimal compared to past years, uh, and they put it down to the fact that people were wearing masks because of COVID, and, of course, that helped stop the spread of the flu. That's right, yeah. The flu also being a respiratory illness, uh, masks will protect against that as well, as will social distancing. Um, but we're, we're, we're at capacity right now, and we know that uh, in terms of hospital uh, beds in some regions of Ontario, and it's a little worrying that uh, we may add to that by just these extra flu cases that might manifest themselves more severely. Well, we'll see if we get the message, and uh, we'll certainly be watching uh, for uh, the Premier's uh, messaging, I guess, about 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for the time and for the advice today. Uh, stay well, and uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. You too. Thanks again for having me. You betcha. Dr. Todd Coleman, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news. McGrath University and Brock University have teamed up on a new research and development for a device that actually detects cancer 
in minutes at your home. Leo Soleimani is the Associate Professor and Canadian Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices. That's the Department of Engineering, Physics, and the lead on this project at McMaster University, and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Uh, thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. Talk to us about uh, this. How long have you been working on this? This is incredible. Yeah, so I've, I've really been working on technologies like this for the past decade or so. Specifically with this device, we've been working with Brock University Professor Feng Li for the past five years or so. So just talk to us about how this begins. I mean, we take pride especially, and I know you know this, Professor, but uh, for our listeners uh, right across Ontario that are listening to the program today, uh, we pride ourselves not just on the, the, the great work we do in dealing with cancer at the Jurovinsky Center at McMaster University, uh, but in research. And we've, we've made some huge strides over the last number of years, haven't we? Yes, we have. And, um, you know, early cancer diagnostics is, is one of the things that, that is responsible for, you know, better cancer survival rates and better patient outcomes. But, um, you know, um, disease management or cancer management doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at the diagnosis. But um, there's also a great need for cancer monitoring, right? So the patient mm-hmm. goes home and they take medication. So there is also the need to... Uh, to manage disease uh, through monitoring, which this device can also help with that. Well, that's interesting because I know with, when you're dealing with other medical conditions, diabetes or, or other things, uh, it, it part, that's part of the regimen, isn't it, to monitor on a daily basis. How am I doing today? Uh, and, it's, and it's basically a lot, I, I would think, Dr. Professor, for your own good comfort as well to say, if, am I getting worse, am I getting better, are things stable? I mean, how you feel doesn't necessarily indicate what's going on inside your body. So this is a very effective tool. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, glucose monitors have really revolutionized diabetes uh, management, right? They, they've incru- improved uh, the life, lives of patients because it, it gives them the ability to, to monitor their condition multiple times a day, uh, m- multiple times per day, maybe after each meal, before each meal. So, so we are hoping that a device like this brings the same kind of a personalized medicine, semi-continuous monitoring to other diseases like cancer where, you know, um, um, medications are taken and the disease can be monitored, uh, both in the short term but also the long term to see if there are, you know, chances of, of recurrence and that way early interventions become a reality. Now, you mentioned with the glucose monitor, obviously, we know what that monitors. And, and, and you know, if it's out of whack, then you know you have to do something about it or adjust medications or whatever the case might be. Uh, the, the monitor that you've developed here for cancer uh, research, uh, what, what are they looking for? What, is it, what, what, what are the, the, the principles that it's going to be looking for to make that evaluation? Yeah, so as you said, with glucose, you know, we're, we're looking at a, at a metabolite. We're looking at, at measuring glucose. Uh, with, with this device, we're looking at uh, some biological materials, uh, bi- um, biological molecules, particularly proteins, that are elevated in cancer patients. So specifically here, we're looking at the prostate, a specific antigen um, that, Again, elevated in prostate cancer patient, and it's it's a diagnostic marker, but also it's a it's a monitoring treatment monitoring and patient monitoring marker. Um, so we we quantify the level of this protein in a patient blood, and um, and you know provide that kind of information uh, to to the clinician who's treating this this patient to to better manage this 
um, this disease. So when you, as it's, as it's looking for protein, is, it, is that a common trait through all kinds of, because there are different kinds of cancer, obviously, uh, depending on different parts of the body, et cetera. But this is, this is really just something that's in the blood that will be a monitor that would, what, raise a red flag for you? Yeah, exactly. So, so there's these things called, um, uh, biomarkers. So these are biological mm-hmm. materials, uh, biological molecules, really, that their presence, their absence, and their level could be um, can be markers for cancer or for other diseases. So, and there's been a huge amount of research on what's called biomarker discovery. Um, and so what we have developed is a tool that can very rapidly and, you know, using very simple instrumentation, um, quantify these, these biomarkers. So particularly in this case, we're looking at this particular protein that is uh, significant for prostate cancer, but really this methodology allows us to look at other approved and and discovered biomarkers for uh, for doing disease diagnostics, but also management better. Now, the glucose monitor has gone under a number of different revisions over the years. I've done a lot of work on this one. How does how does your uh, how does your thing work? How do, exactly, what do you need? Do you drop a blood? I mean, does, how does a, how do you get the meet the readings? Yeah, so yeah, so the glucose monitor has come a long way and um the nice thing about glucose is that it is freely available in blood at relatively high levels, high concentrations. So uh so you basically take a blood a drop of blood, you put it on a strip, you put that strip into a reader and you get a glucose readout. With with these biomarkers, they're a lot less abundant, so it's kind of a needle in a haystack problem. Um, and, you know, some of them, they're, they might be embedded in other, uh, you know, biological materials, et cetera. So what we do, we, we want to use that, that same easy-to-use handheld reader that we use for glucose monitoring. So we're keeping that, that part the same. But we have this, what we call, a, you know, reagent vial. So you take a drop of blood, you put it in this reagent vial, and what's available in that is a number of, biological molecules that are that are quite smart they're programmable so there's dna and there's protein that will um that will kind of serve as an interface between your blood sample and the reader and what that will do it will generate some chemicals that then like glucose can be directly and easily be read on the on that that handheld reader so really what to, to the user none of that really matters because that what happens in that vial is you know is invisible to the reader the, the the user so the user takes a drop of blood puts it in that vial you know waits a few minutes now take takes a drop from that vial and puts it on the the strip that goes into the reader so so we, what we've we've tried to do is to translate I put a put a translation piece in between, you know, the drop of blood and the readout using the glucose monitor to make this applicable to things to diseases like cancer. So, once you get the reading, if you find that uh, this is of concern, uh, what are the next steps? Yeah. So right now, I mean, we, we've developed a proof of concept, but what we want to do in the future is connect this device to the cloud and okay. integrate that with the healthcare system so that. You know, the, this information about, um, you know, the, the levels of the biomarker can be shared with the, uh, with the healthcare providers so that, you know, in case there are, you know, the therapy needs to be 
to change or, you know, they're, they're unusual things, then they can intervene quickly. Yeah, well, you, you're skipping a couple of steps here, aren't you? Ordinarily, I mean, if you weren't feeling well or were concerned, you'd have to make an appointment, go see your, your physician about that. They do the test there, and then you get the results. This way, you can just say, yeah, I'll send it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's really the vision behind all of this, to to make the patient's lives easier and, you know, save them those trips um, to, you know, to, to the physician's office and make, make um, also make good quality health care accessible to, to, to everyone. How soon is this going to be available for, for the general public, for doctors and, and for patients for that matter? Yeah, so, I mean, diagno- in vitro diagnostics, um, commercialization is, uh, well, unfortunately in a way, but, but also fortunately, um, it, it's, it's, it's highly regulated. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so, unfortunately, it's a long process, but fortunately it is regulated because you don't want to bring something to the market. Um, you know, before it's validated because it can generate more harm than good. So, so it is a long process, you know, that it is a five year plus timeline for commercialization and, and validation. So we're, we're at, at, at a good place, uh, but we, we know that there's a lot of work ahead of us to get there. Professor, congratulations on this. I know your work is not done by any stretch, but uh, as you say, you're in a good place right now. This is fascinating news uh, for people that are dealing with this. And uh, just one more thing to make uh, cancer uh, research, but also uh, dealing with cancer that much easier for the folks that are dealing with that. Uh, We'll continue to watch your progress on this, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Professor Leila Soleimani from McMaster University uh, with a new cancer detection device. Just incredible news for that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.